Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. Hello, I'm Dominic Ford, and this month I've taken to the seaside to bring you a special episode of Naked Astronomy from the National Astronomy Meeting, which was organised by the Royal Astronomical Society in St Andrews in the first week of July. All through the week, I was making daily podcasts that you may already have seen if you're a subscriber to the Naked Scientist's special podcasts feed. This is a condensed version of those podcasts, in which we'll be finding out about the sparkles that can help us understand solar flares, plans to let schoolchildren loose on a new research-grade telescope, and a technique that could produce the first high-resolution images of quasars. As always, if you'd like to get in touch, tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can drop us an email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. But first of all, I caught up with Professor David Southwood, the Royal Astronomical Society's president, and I asked him about the RAS's role in nurturing astronomy in the UK. Well, it's the Professional Society of Astronomers. It's been in existence for nearly 200 years, founded by William Herschel in 1820. It really looks after the professional standards of astronomers, but increasingly looks after making the general public aware of how important astronomy is to our nation as a whole. And that's something that perhaps seems a little obscure because, you know, astronomers stay up all night staring at the stars. In fact, that's not quite the truth. (laughs) Really, the technology that we use and the science we do is really fundamental in the long term to the science and technology health of our country. So it's very important we get that message across And, of course, the RAS is also the professional body for geophysics as well. What's the connection between astronomy and geophysics? Well, they're both big science. Uh, The Earth is pretty big. I mean, I know the universe is bigger. But geophysics is very, very similar in that the science is often the same kind of science, using physics and chemistry and, indeed, nowadays, biology, Geophysics came into the Astronomical Society about 100 years ago, and the merger is not always perfect because sometimes you want to look up rather than down if you're an astronomer, but uh, there's a lot of cross-fertilization possible, and in fact that's become more so in the last 20 years simply because of the discovery of exoplanets. If we're going to look at life on planets elsewhere... 
we had better understand our own planet right. And so geophysics fits right in there because geophysics is about a planet about which we can know an awful lot. And looking at the schedule for NAN, we're going to be learning a lot more about exoplanets this week. What for you is the special place of NAM in the RAS year? Well, it's the annual event. It's really somewhere where we all get together. I think it's very important in giving us a sense of community. Now, that isn't that you can't go to the Burlington House meetings and so on, but they tend to be specialist meetings. This tackles everything in astronomy. And so it's a great time for particularly students and postdocs to feel part of a wider community. You know, if you're studying in Portsmouth and you come to St Andrews, it's a very long way, but you're in the same country and you're in the same community. And so it's very, very important to build up this sense of belonging to a wider community because when you finish your postdoc or when you finish your PhD, where are you going to go? Well, you maybe will go abroad, but eventually most of us want to come back to the British Isles. So very important to feel part of the wide community in the British Isles, which is what NAM serves as, moving around the country, pulling in scientists from all over the country, and indeed always a few big names from Europe and from the United States. So it becomes a sort of world meeting in a way. It's a very, I think it's the parochial aspect the British Isles aspect that really is its most important thing. And you hinted there that of the 560-odd delegates here this week, a lot of them will obviously be at early stages in their career, so it's a very important networking opportunity for them. Yes, I I was avoiding the word networking (laughs) because, you know, I don't want it to feel aggressive. You know, I mean, when you're doing your PhD or whatever, you network without knowing it because you network by joining in the soccer tournament or by, you know, talking to the person sitting next to you in the session or asking the way to the next uh, session you want to go to. That's actually networking. If you make it networking, it sounds a bit managerial. And at least when I was doing my PhD, I didn't want to be managerial. <laughs> it's something comes later in life. So, Yes, of course, it's a wonderful networking opportunity, and that's indeed what you do. You, you meet people from places that uh, outside your normal orbit, let's say, in astronomical terms, but you realise you have things in common, and also you remember people and you may meet them later in your career. That's what networking's about. I guess a lot of the PhD students here might meet their future boss for a postdoc, or a lot of postdocs might find their next postdoc here. Exactly, yes. Or indeed, and I think this is also very important, because there's such a range of sessions, topics on display, so to speak, particularly with the fact we have um, plenary lectures, they're a wonderful way to think, oh, well, you know, I'm enjoying myself on my PhD, but maybe if I slide sideways, there's life elsewhere, if you see what I mean. You know, that is, it can broaden your mind and... You know, you, you may not meet your future boss, but you might meet your future topic. That was Professor David Southwood, the Royal Astronomical Society's president. Now, what can sparkles in the sun's atmosphere tell us about how it generates heat? Professor Robert Walsh from the University of Central Lancashire presented results at NAM from the High Sea Camera, which has been launched aboard a sounding rocket from New Mexico. Well, we've been working with the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center, 
and also the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in order to create an instrument for a sounding rocket. This instrument was the High Resolution uh, Coronal Imager, or HiC for short. And uh, we worked with NASA. We provided the camera electronic box where they provided the detectors and the actual optics of what's going on with the overall aim of producing an instrument which could observe the sun in extreme ultraviolet light at the highest resolution that we'd ever seen and ever done possible. And uh, we launched this on a sounding rocket from the New Mexico Dexit in July of last year and managed to capture just less than five minutes' worth of data. But as our results are showing, and particularly with what we're talking about today, it's an incredibly rich data set. And uh, we're finding that the observations that we have taken really are stretching our understanding of the solar corona, and in particular the small scales that we actually see here. So this was only a rocket. It only flew for a very short period of time, but the data set has been very good indeed. I guess I find it slightly surprising that you're using a rocket given the number of spacecraft. I'm thinking of SOHO and STEREO and the Solid Dynamics Observatory. What can you get from using a rocket instead? Well, part of the reason for using this rocket was a technology demonstrator for the instrument itself. Whenever you're going to put an instrument on a satellite, it's good for you to test maybe the different types of optics and what you're trying to do uh, on a sounding rocket program, which is much cheaper. And also it allows you to be maybe a bit more adventurous than sticking something on a satellite, which costs hundreds of millions of pounds. So we were doing this both as a technology demonstrator, but also we really wanted to push the science. And fortunately enough, in this particular case, we managed to be able to do both. The instrument worked exceptionally well, and the data came back, and that's incredibly detailed and excellent, really. And uh, since then, we've been able to exploit that so much. And we're, we are looking to see if we can actually take this high sea instrument and then place it on a satellite in the future. So how have you managed to get those higher resolution images? Is it just a better camera that you're using? Yeah, it's a mixture of things. The optics were a lot better than we've ever done before. We're actually using the same detector that we have on the Solar Dynamics Observatory, managed to get one of those. But it was the layout of what was actually happening, the pixel resolution we actually chose, and also the degree of sensitivity of the instrumentation meant that we would actually get an image which was five times better than we have with the Solar Dynamics Observatory. And with a time scale, a cadence, uh, how rapidly you take the images to be about three or four times better as well. But of course, the Solar Dynamics Observatory runs 24 hours a day taking images of IMAX quality every 10 seconds over a range of wavelengths. We had one wavelength, we had about two to three minutes, but in the two to three minutes we've seen some very, very special things. And why is the surface of the sun such an interesting place? Well, of course, we're trying to understand our sun-earth connection. And in particular, for what we saw and what we've been talking about, is the intricate details of the electrified gases interacting with the sun's magnetic field, which produce all the interesting things we see on the surface of the sun. In this particular case, we were able to go down to a resolution of seeing the finest threads and some of the, the greatest detail and interactions between the plasma and the magnetic field. We need to understand that in order to try and understand, for example, these large eruptions which come out from the sun. We can see them on a very large scale, but it's at this very, very smaller scales that the trigger mechanism is likely taking place. And therefore, we're trying to push the resolution to get down to those levels and understand why and when those triggers could take place. So you've seen these features that you've called sparkles, I think, in the surface of the sun. What are you going to then go on to do with those observations to try and understand them? Well, these sparkles, as we've termed them, are literally small, 
at the smallest scale, even for our instrumentation, to pick up a, a similarly energy release within the atmosphere of the star. And we've never really seen these before. On the Solar Dynamics Observatory, if we look at corresponding images to the images that we've taken, it looks like noise. It looks like they aren't really there. It's simply an image artifact. But actually, when you compare it to what we've seen with high C, they really are physical features. And if this energy is being released on those scales in the atmosphere in that way, then that may help us to understand one of the greatest mysteries that we have around solar physics at this moment in time, and that's the coronal heating problem. How does the outer atmosphere of the sun reach temperatures of millions of degrees when the surface of the sun is thousands of degrees? And we believe it's due to the magnetic field releasing energy into the outer atmosphere. And we've never really seen some of the theoretical aspects of that before. Actually, now with high C, we have. And in particular, trying to understand the braiding of magnetic fields around each other and these solar sparkles, small-scale energy release, which you know, over about 25, 30 seconds releases as much energy as the UK consumes in an entire year. And if we add all that up, then that's a tremendous amount of energy to actually pump into the outer atmosphere of the star and hence potentially solve the coronal heating problem. The sun's surface has these events we call coronal mass ejections, which I guess are very interesting for us because they're huge eruptions of gas into the solar system and when those collide with their own planet, they cause electrical storms. Are these sparkles helping us to understand the origin of these coronal mass ejections? Well, in some respects, yes, because it gives us an idea of what the magnetic complexity is of the outer atmosphere. One of the other observations that we did see are these solar, what we've termed solar highways. They really are fine threads of material travelling at 80 kilometres a second, cool plasma within these filaments, the, the areas that give these eruptions. And if we understand the sort of the internal workings of these sort of filaments and prominences which produce these solar storms you're talking about, then maybe you can understand why they erupt and what's the mechanism that suddenly switches them on and they move outwards and expand out into interplanetary space. It's a bit like trying to, to look at your watch. You, can, you know a watch actually works. You, know, you can see the time, you know it's working inside, you wind it up. With these solar filaments, you know, we see them erupting, we know what's actually going on, but we don't know the internal mechanism. So a bit like you looking inside your watch and seeing the cogs and bits and pieces and that, looking inside the filament with the resolution we now have and seeing these solar highways and sparkles related to that gives us an idea of the intricate internal mechanisms of what was going on and hence being able to understand how they work. So why is the sun such a very difficult object to understand? Because it's a ball of gas, we think there's fusion happening at its core. In many ways, it sounds a lot simpler than, say, a planet like the Earth. Well, you would think that. Whenever we glance up at the sun, you'll never look directly at the sun, you'll damage your eyes. But whenever you glance up at the sun, you think it's just a smooth, featureless ball in the sky. Okay, it provides all the light and heat and energy that we require for life on Earth. But whenever we look at it at the wavelengths of light we're looking at across the electromagnetic spectrum, and we're going to extreme ultraviolet here, then you see a complexity that is really quite outstanding. And in particular, the interplay between the magnetic field and the electrified gases is really something quite special. And at the moment, this huge, big plasma laboratory that we have out there is really challenging our understanding of what's going on, both in regard to the size and the scale of what's actually happening, but also the intricate interplay between what's happening in the, in the electrified gases and the magnetic field, generating the, the motions and dynamic structure that we actually see. So um, sometimes you may think the sun is very simple. It is an ordinary star. Of course, but uh, when you look at that sort of detail, it really is quite extraordinary. My thanks to Professor Robert Walsh from the University of Central Lancashire. Robert is working to understand how the sun's surface behaves, but equally important for us on Earth 
is how our own planet's magnetic field responds to continual bombardment by high-energy particles from the Sun. When bursts of material, coronal mass ejections, collide with the Earth, they can trigger northern lights. But more seriously, they can also generate large electric fields that can be so strong that they can knock out power distribution grids. Dr Dremy Kelly from the British Geological Survey presented new measurements of these electric fields at NAM, and I asked her how these electric fields are generated. There's all kinds of solar events that get carried towards the Earth, and what we look out for is usually things called coronal mass ejections. So they're large clouds of plasma that get thrown off the sun, and a couple of days later they hit the Earth's magnetic field, which makes the Earth's magnetic field highly variable. So then that, in turn, induces currents in the Earth. So you get this electric field in the Earth, which most normal days doesn't really affect us at all. But if you have a really big storm, it can cause quite big currents, which then try and find the easiest way to flow. So if you have a nice power grid grounded to the Earth, those currents will flow through that power grid. And I think this has actually caused electrical blackouts in the past, hasn't it? It has in the past. There's an awful lot of work that goes on now to try and minimise that, but there's always a potential for problems. And I guess part of the problem is that these extreme solar events are quite rare, so it's difficult to get much data on them. Yeah, they're fairly rare, and at the moment, although we should be at a solar maximum, there's not been anything that large recently. So there's been some studies, we've done some studies on kind of extreme statistics. But yeah, you're right, there's no, or there's not much actual data for these really big events. So what are you doing to try and understand them? Well, we've got a new project at the BGS where we are now doing a long-term monitoring of the electric field in the surface of the Earth at our three observatories. With that, we're measuring the electric field at three sites in the UK, and we're intending that to be a really long-term project so that we can amass as much data as we can and catch as many storms as we can with that, so that we can then compare that to other work that we're doing to model those electric fields. So it's the idea that you will then be able to predict what those electric fields are going to do on the basis of other measurements? Not so much predict into the future. The idea is that we can do kind of what's called a nowcast. So if the magnetic field has become very variable, we can get a quite good idea of what the electric field is likely to be doing and therefore what currents might be flowing in the ground. So how do you go about measuring these electric fields? So it's actually quite a simple process. We essentially have two probes stuck in the ground at a set distance apart and we have two sets of those at each site. So we have one set that measures an east-west electric field and we have one set that measures north-south to give us a full picture of the field. Now, it's slightly more complicated than that. The probes themselves have to be designed specifically to minimise kind of self-potential effects, but we've done as much as we can so that we are measuring the electric field due to the magnetic variations. And then, presumably, are you feeding those measurements into models of how the Earth is responding to the solar wind? So far, those electric measurements don't go directly into a model, but what they do do is they help us to assess the models that we run Basically, we take the magnetic field measurements and a model of the conductivity structure, which has been worked out using a geological map of the UK, produced by colleagues down at Keyworth at BGS there. And we have a fairly simple model of how 
the electric field is then formed in the surface of the Earth. And by doing that, we can then combine that with a network model, say, from a power grid, which would tell us where these geomagnetically induced currents would be. So these electric field measurements are allowing us to assess that model. And so far, we're finding that the model is not too bad, but we've already started to improve it, and this project is quite new. So is the issue here that the magnetic measurements are quite easy to take, the electric field measurements are sparser? Partly. I wouldn't have said the magnetic fields were easier to take, but there's a much more established network of magnetic observatories with very, very high standards and all very quality controlled. But electric field measurements tend to only be done on a very short timescale. They tend to be for specific projects looking for a specific localised thing. Whereas what we're now doing is we're taking very long-term measurements at dedicated sites and trying to get a picture across the UK. And that, I guess, is allowing you to spot patterns in that data? It's starting to. One thing we've found is we really need stormy data to really see these big signals in the electric field because there's a lot of local effects. And so far there's only been a few kind of stormy events to look at. I guess it must be quite infuriating for you in that case that the sun's been so quiet in the last solar cycle. A little bit. Obviously we don't want too much activity, but yeah, it would be nice to be able to have some nice big storms to really kind of investigate. And then is the idea that you can then feed this data back to power companies and let them know when there might be electric fields that might potentially knock out grids like the National Grid? Yeah, it's definitely helping us in our work say to improve our own models and those models get fed to National Grid so that they can use what we tell them about kind of the science side and they can then compare that with what they know about the engineering side of what kind of current might cause damage to a transformer. And what's the next step for you? Do you just need to watch and wait for the sun to produce events? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, so we have a few months now of data so we can start to look for other patterns in that data as well and eventually... You know, we'd like to look at improving our conductivity map as well. But yeah, there is a certain element of waiting for bigger storms and more storms just so we can get better correlations. My thanks to Dr Jeremy Kelly of the British Geological Survey. You're listening to Naked Astronomy with me, Dominic Ford. Earlier in the podcast, I spoke to Professor David Southwood, the Royal Astronomical Society's president, about the importance of the National Astronomy Meeting. Later in the week, I caught up with him again to talk about the economic impact of astronomy. The RAS recently produced a booklet called Beyond the Stars about the benefits of astronomy to society, and I asked David about the thinking behind the booklet. Well, because we need to tell people why doing astronomy is important, not just in some intellectual sense, it's important for our society, that we don't need to feel ashamed of being astronomers, we're not living off the taxpayer, we're actually contributing to the real wealth of our country in innovation, in also building technologies that can be used elsewhere. Astronomy literally pushes you to the frontier, so inevitably we're thinking beyond today beyond the everyday but that kind of creative scientific technical thought is extremely important in a society like we live in we need creative people who may have done a PhD in astrophysics but can then go out and conquer worlds maybe more mundane in some regard but using 
the creativity they've picked up in being an astronomer, at least early in their career. And I think it's too easy to regard astronomy as just something for people who like to stay up all night looking at the stars. Well, we do that, but that's not the real story. What we're doing is working out the physics of our universe. For human beings, we're finding out where our place in that universe is. It makes us feel a little insignificant at times, but at the same time, the physics, the chemistry, and now the biology behind that is of great importance to living on our planet today. And frankly, it's important to everybody how we live on our planet today. So I guess many of the scientific techniques used in astronomy can be applied elsewhere, and that's why so many astronomy graduates end up working elsewhere in the sciences and in industry. Absolutely. Your mobile phone has technology in it that was developed originally for interplanetary communications. You use GPS possibly to find where you are today. Well, that came out of the International Geophysical Year back in 1957. Really, you can say, well, it's just a technology we're on top of now. No, creative uses of GPS are still coming and advances in GPS still rely on an interface with astronomy. And uh, just as astronomy used to be used by sailors without them needing to know what stars were but needing to know how the stars moved, frankly, astronomy is behind an awful lot of things that we take for granted like the sailors did 500 years ago. And I guess in my background, I did a postdoc on the SKA before I joined Naked Astronomy. I guess many of the sort of radio antennas that we're designing for radio telescopes are also applicable to radar systems, Wi-Fi, the list goes on. Absolutely. In fact, it's a kind of two-way street, in fact. Uh, Radio astronomy came out really essentially after the Second World War because radar and so on had discovered by accident that there were radio sources out in uh, the cosmos, in fact, particularly the sun. What happened then is astronomers took over, but of course there's then a positive feedback. Really, so many technologies in radio astronomy are used for everyday and very critical things. Looking at earthquakes and understanding how the plates have moved in an earthquake, we use a technique originally developed in Cambridge in the 1950s for radio astronomy. Probably wasn't in the mind of the scientists at Cambridge at the time. But boy, it has paid off with the creativity of people, often with degrees in astrophysics, who've gone in to looking at more practical uses of the technology. And uh, I think the list is endless. Most graduates who go into astronomy, they don't imagine that what they're doing is going to be useful in wider industrial applications. They're interested in understanding the universe. Do you think there's a conflict in how you're selling what they're doing to government and what they envisage they're doing when they're going into astronomy? I don't think so. Of course, we'd all like to do exactly what we'd like to do. In fact, I'm not so sure that astronomers are as otherworldly as you suggest. Uh, Maybe some are, but um, I think many are just fascinated by the challenges of astronomy. And what I think is important is one realises 
well. If I do well in astronomy, I can tackle other problems too. The techniques you're picking up are really so applicable elsewhere. In a way, I think when you're at your most creative, I'm sad to say because I'm three times this age, but it's around the age of 20, 22, something like that. That's when you should do (laughs) your greatest astronomy. Um, As you sort of wind down, you can use all the skills you've picked up and start paying back a little bit to the society you're in. And uh, I just don't think anyone who's interested in the technology of telescopes or the, um, the science of astrophysics should ever imagine that they couldn't apply elsewhere the modes of thinking and the techniques of analysis that they're using. It's inevitable. I guess when I think back to my younger years, perhaps the biggest effect astronomy has had on my life is by inspiring me to become a scientist in the first place as a teenager. I guess that must be quite common. (laughs) Well, it's common because there are two of us here and both of us (laughs) would say the same thing about that. And that's really why I think, you know, it's very important to recognise the use of astronomy also in inspiration Many of us who are inspired by astronomy are not going to end up being astronomers. You know, I mean, I spent the last 15 years of my life running big engineering teams in the European Space Agency. Sure, we were chasing astronomy, but of course a lot of the things I were doing were engineering. That's no shame. I'm not embarrassed by it. And we astronomers are at the cusp between asking how human beings came to be and how our Earth came to be and how our solar system came to be, how our universe came to be. But don't forget, we only got there using science and technology. That was Professor David Southwood, the RAS's president. The Liverpool Telescope is the world's largest fully robotic telescope and thanks to its schools programme, 5% of its time is offered to children, giving them a rare opportunity to make use of a world-class research facility in the classroom. Plans are afoot, however, to upgrade the telescope to an even larger 4-metre facility. Chris Copperwheat from Liverpool John Moores University talked at NAM about a feasibility study for the upgrade. The Liverpool Telescope is quite a unique telescope. It's a telescope that's entirely robotic, and it's the largest robotic telescope in the world. It's got a a two-metre aperture. That's the size of the primary mirror. Robotic astronomy now is becoming more and more commonplace, but the Liverpool Telescope was something of a a trailblazer in this regard. So with robotic observing, there is no observer at the telescope. There is no person watching it from Liverpool. There's a robotic software program that is entirely controlling the telescope. It decides when to open, it decides what to observe, and it decides when to close for weather or changes in conditions. So I guess that saves you a lot of travel expense and so forth. But I gather it also helps you to get schools involved in working with the telescope. Yeah, yeah, the uh, the schools program has certainly been a big part of it. 5% of Liverpool telescope time is given to schools that's run through an organisation called the National Schools Observatory and um, we've served um, thousands of schools UK-wide. They can use the same telescope that professional astronomers use, collect data and look at it in their schools and this has uh, been a key part of our programme. I guess you must need to guide the schools a fair bit as to what they could do with a telescope of that class that would be interesting to science. 
Yes, there's all sorts of things we can do. The National Schools Observatory has a comprehensive website where it talks about the hows and the whys of observing. There's a training for teachers and this sort of thing. It's a thing that's extremely easy to get involved in, so I'd encourage any schools who are not part of that program currently to look at the National Schools Observatory website and see how they can get involved. We serve thousands of schools UK-wide and we have the capacity to reach many more. So what science are you doing with the Liverpool Telescope? So... The interesting thing about robotic observing, it's not just that it makes life easier for us, but it also enables research programs that wouldn't be possible with conventional observing. For example, let's say I'm looking at a star that's changing very slowly in brightness over timescales of months or years, and I just need a five-minute observation of that star every three months, for example. That's something I couldn't do with a conventional telescope. I can't be flying backwards and forwards to the Canary Islands or Chile every few months. So with a robotic program, it can observe these things automatically for you and get this large data set. The other thing that robotic observing is very good for is things that happen very quickly, very uh, violent, explosive events in the universe where you want to get on the target. The um, optical light from that emission is fading extremely quickly, so you want to get on there and capture the light as close to the initial explosion as possible. So this is an interesting part of science. Supernova science is quite fundamental and very important uh, in all sorts of different areas of astronomy. So this week you're talking about upgrading the Liverpool telescope from 2 metres to 4 metres aperture. Mm -hmm. What can you do with that extra aperture? Right, OK, so it's a big upgrade because you, you think in terms of area, you're going from 2 metres to 4 metres, that's a considerable increase in collecting area. So the thing is, the current Liverpool telescope, a lot of the science it does is photometry. So this means it's measuring the brightnesses and the change in brightness of individual stars. There's a lot you can do with that. But as we move into the next decade or so, we're seeing more and more large telescopes dedicated to surveying the entire sky. Programs like PTF, SkyMapper, and the Americans are building a huge billion-dollar telescope called the LSST. And that's going to survey the entire sky, the entire southern sky, every few days. And so a lot of the photometry is going to be done by these very wide field surveys, and they're also going to find a lot of these explosive transients, supernovae and so on. So the question is, what's our niche in the next decade? And our niche really is spectroscopy. Um, this is when you look at the light from the star, split it up with a dispersing element, and look at the composition. And this is a route where you can really do some fundamental science because you can understand the physics and the composition of the object you're looking at. And spectroscopy, because of the way it splits up the light, it really demands a larger aperture to look at the uh, brighter targets. Sorry, the, the targets of the same brightness. So um, while we do some spectroscopy with our current 2-metre telescope, we're limited to bright targets. With a 4-metre aperture, we'll be able to really do spectroscopy on a huge range of objects and all the objects that are going to be discovered by these new surveys. And I guess it's incredible that you will be putting a really truly research-class telescope in the hands of school kids a lot of the time. Yes, this is true. Yeah, I mean, um, the educational programme has been uh, incredibly important to the success of LT, and we think it's something that's fundamental to the mission. So not only will we anticipate there will be some time available on LT2 for schools, we're also hoping to really expand the amount of time that's available for schools on the LT. So this will uh, enable schools to do a wider range of projects and we'll be able to reach more schools in the UK and uh, Europe-wide. And what stage are you at with LT2? Are you still trying to find funding, for example? Yes, I mean, um, I joined the Liverpool Group in September to begin a, a two-year feasibility study that's been funded by the university. So we're now about nine months into that process. So we're at the point where we've established the science case. We know the type of science we want to do with the telescope, and we've been talking about concepts like the design, site, 
A four-metre telescope is an expensive piece of kit, and we will need partnerships. We'll need partnerships with both other academic groups in the UK and further afield. When you say expensive, how expensive are we talking? Probably the ballpark figure, you're talking about maybe 20 million. You know, plus or minus 5 million, I'd say. So I guess that's quite a bit, but by the standards of astronomical projects, that's not a huge amount, is it? Well, this is true, yeah. You you look at things like the ELT, which will cost a billion euros. You look at things like LSFT, I mentioned, which will cost a billion dollars. It's not on that sort of scale. And it's quite interesting. You can do an awful lot of science with this class of telescope, and it's also very cost-effective. If you actually look at the cost of telescopes and the cost per paper that you get out of that telescope, the four-metre class really is very efficient in producing good science. And I gather one of the key features of the Liverpool telescope is that it can move across the sky very quickly. Why is that so important? Yeah, so this is it. So you you get a rapid response with the telescope, not just from the fact that it's robotic and automatic in that sense, but also the design of the telescope, the enclosure. It leads itself to a very sort of rapid flu across the sky uh, upon um, detection by, say, uh, the swift gamma-ray burst satellite. When it detects a gamma-ray burst, we can be on that gamma-ray burst and following up the optical light within a minute to two minutes. And this is very important because the afterglows, the optical light from something like a gamma-ray burst, fades extremely quickly. So in some sense, their slew speed even trumps aperture in this case in terms of their collecting numbers of photons, although ideally you want both. You want a larger aperture and you want a rapid slew speed. This is something that's been a core strength of uh, the Liverpool Telescope. It's so fast to get on target that the gamma-ray burst science has been something that's been really productive for the LT. And this is something we want to continue with LT too. We want to flew even faster. This is a technical challenge. As you build a bigger telescope, it becomes harder to slew across the sky. But our hope is that we could build a nimble and agile robotic telescope that could get on a new uh, detection within a few tens of seconds. And if it does get the go-ahead, when might it be taking observations? Our aim would be to uh, have science fair flight in the early part of the next decade, so 2020, 2021, something like that. The reason for that time span is it fits really well with all the other projects that are going ahead, things like um, LSST, I've not talked about radio, but um, SKA is something else that we might follow up. And we should be seeing the next generation of gamma-ray burst satellites at the beginning of the next decade. So it really works well with all these other programs that will be feeding us targets and we can get sort of complementary information from space satellites and other ground-based facilities at other wavelengths. My thanks to Chris Copperwheat from Liverpool John Moores University. Sticking with large astronomical projects, the Dark Energy Survey is the largest ever search for supernovae. By finding large numbers of very distant stellar explosions and very accurately determining their brightnesses, it hopes to pin down whether the rate of expansion of the universe is accelerating over time. Chris D'Andrea from the University of Portsmouth announced at NAM that the survey has found its first 200 candidate supernovae. I asked him how these supernovae can tell us so much about the universe. Their usefulness is that they can be seen from so far away. We can see them halfway across the age of the universe. So that in itself is useful. But then what's very useful about them is we know enough about a particular type of them, type 1a supernovae, that we can observe them and determine how bright they are intrinsically. And if you know exactly how bright something is and you observe it, you can figure out how far away you are. Very simple 1 over r squared sort of law where as you get further away from something, it will appear fainter. So since we know how bright they are, we can measure the distance to them. And so we can measure the distance as a function of time. And we measure the rate that the universe is expanding in by measuring how far it is to something that happened very long ago. 
So the Dark Energy Survey is going about collecting large numbers of these supernovae. How do you go about detecting them? So supernovae are transient objects, and as a result, what that means is we have to look back in the same area of the sky repeatedly. One of the great things about the Dark Energy Survey is that it has a huge camera. A single image of the sky is the field of view about 15 times that of the full moon. And so that means we can get a large area in a single observation. So we can take several images of different patches of the sky, wait a few days, come back, keep taking images, and we do that for several months. And over that period of time, you'll see the rise and fall of many of these objects. And so because these are rare events, you're wanting to cover as much of the sky as possible to maximise the chance that one crops up in your field of view. Yes, so we're looking for things that are quite far away and we don't know where they're going to happen. Uh, There are two ways that supernova searches have historically gone about finding them. One of them is to look at local galaxies that are very bright, sort of maximise your chance of pointing your camera at something and you're going to find something there. The other, which is a much more recent innovation, is what they call a rolling search or a blind search, where you don't really know that a supernova is going to occur there, but you cover such a large area of the sky and just keep revisiting it, and hopefully you'll find many of these things. So when you see a new object appearing in your images, how do you know that that's genuinely a supernova? All supernova surveys in the past have had to then take a telescope usually a large one, and point it at the object and get a spectrum of it to analyze in detail the light that's coming from the object. This is used in the Nobel Prize winning survey and all the ones that have come since then. Dark Energy Survey is going to find a factor of 10 or more supernovae than previous ones, and future surveys, such as the LSST, is going to find hundreds of thousands of supernovae. This is completely infeasible that you would then be able to take these huge telescopes and point them in live time, as these things are fainting, at all of these objects. So we've come up with a new method of photometric classification as opposed to using spectroscopy. We use the light curves, the rising and falling of the light in different colors as a function of time, to identify whether or not these fit to pre-known classes. And since there's only one of these classes that we can use for cosmology, this is incredibly important. You can't actually do supernova cosmology without having accurate classification. But I guess you've presumably got to verify those techniques to make sure you are picking out genuine events. Yes, this method has actually been tested recently. The Supernova Legacy Survey, which occurred over the previous five years ending in 2008, they found many things which they weren't able to follow up with spectra. And just recently they took a large telescope in Australia called the AAT, the Anglo-Australian Telescope, and looked at the galaxies where many of these supernovae occurred to find the redshifts, the distance to these supernovae, all at once. So these were all things that have now faded, but the galaxy light just stays there. And so this is sort of the method that we're going to use is we take the photometry from the supernova and we take a spectrum from the galaxy. So they recently tested this, and uh, it works fantastically well. And we've just won a proposal, a survey-length proposal, for 100 nights of time on this telescope over the next five years. So the Dark Energy Survey is going to be in collaboration with this Australian group to use this telescope, which matches perfectly the capabilities of the new dark energy camera on the Blanco telescope. So the Dark Energy Survey doesn't formally start until August, but you've already got 200 candidate objects. What's the status of the project? So Dark Energy Survey, it's a collaboration between the Blanco telescope in Chile, which is a four-meter telescope, and the Dark Energy Survey, where the 
Dark Energy Survey provides a huge new camera, dark energy camera with a large field of view, in exchange for a large number of nights of guaranteed time. As a result of this, you have to make sure that the camera works when you put it on the telescope. And so while the Dark Energy Survey starts in August or September of this year, the camera was put on the telescope last year, and they did a phase called commissioning where they make sure everything is, is working. And then we had a phase that we called science verification, where the Dark Energy Survey team got to do observations that would be very similar to what we're expecting to do over the next five years. But all the data is public. And so anybody can really go out and look at this data. It's rather difficult to reduce. And we had a head start because we have a pipeline for it. But we're testing out the pipeline and the science capabilities of the new camera that we built. And so that's where all of these candidates that we have come from, is from this two-plus-month survey season. And what are the cosmological ideas that you're testing with the supernovae? The Dark Energy Survey is a four-probed survey, with which supernova is one of the probes. And it's all designed around constraining dark energy, understanding how the universe's expansion is accelerating and why. There are many different probes, all of which suffer from different systematics and problems. But if you combine them all together in one instrument, a lot of the systematics that affect a particular probe do not affect another. And so we're able to constrain very well this uh, evolution of this expansion as a function of time. So supernovae are one of these. This is very important. It was the first one that was used. It won the Nobel Prize as sort of the discovery of this effect. So people have been talking about dark energy for a while now. And as you say, the Nobel Prize was won for its discovery. What can this new survey add to our understanding of it? Right now, it's unclear whether or not there is dynamical evolution of this dark energy. So one possibility is that dark energy is something which is a constant, a cosmological constant of Einstein's. The evolution with redshift is something which is very difficult to constrain, and previous surveys have put very loose bounds on this. There may be some evolution, but nobody really knows. So by looking at supernovae at different distances, you can see whether the accelerated expansion of the universe is a constant or whether it's been changing over cosmic history. Yes. In a couple of years, we'll start to have our first glimpses of whether or not this is true. And by the end of the five years, we'll have enough data to be able to then start analyzing and put some very interesting constraints on this mysterious phenomenon. That was Chris D'Andrea from the University of Portsmouth. How can we resolve structure within quasars? Until now, that's proven very difficult because quasars are so very distant that they appear point-like to even the world's most powerful telescopes. Professor Andy Lawrence of the University of Edinburgh, however, believes that he might have stumbled, rather by accident, upon a technique that could allow him to do exactly that. When I spoke to him, I started by asking him what he'd been trying to do when he stumbled on his discovery. Well, we were monitoring millions of galaxies to look for things that went bang. We were using a big telescope in Hawaii called PANSTARS, which is a quite big telescope with a very wide field of view. And when we caught something going bang, we've been tracking its behavior with the Liverpool telescope, which is a robotic telescope. So our idea, we thought there would be things going bang due to shredding of stars passing close to black holes in the centers of apparently otherwise dull galaxies. It looks like we found a handful of those events, but we found a whole more of something we were not expecting. Those star-shredding events should last a few months. They should look extremely hot. They might not have the regular emission lines of a quasar that you'd normally get around a black hole. 
Whereas instead, the things we were finding looked like normal quasars, except they'd got a factor of 10, 30, or 100 brighter compared to 10 years ago. And they were either still rising or slowly fading on a timescale of years rather than months. And I think the mystery thickened when you tried to estimate the distances to these objects. It did indeed. This was a bit of a shock. So when we get the spectrum of the quasar that's flaring now, we have a quite accurate distance from the redshift in a classic cosmological manner. For the galaxy, the dull, boring galaxy that was there before this thing went bang, we can estimate its distance by looking at its colours. That's something known as a photometric redshift. That, in fact, was already done by the Sloan Digital Sky Survey team, and their photometric redshift estimates were nearly always smaller than the redshifts we measured with the quasar. So at the moment, the only sensible reason we can think of for that, well, it might just be that those photometric redshifts are wrong for some reason we haven't spotted yet, but it looks unlikely. So the mystery here is that these quasars seem to be much more distant than the galaxies that they appear to be in. Exactly so. So I think the reason is probably because what we thought was the host galaxy of the quasar is not the host galaxy at all. It's a completely separate galaxy that happens to be in the same line of sight. In other words, we've got a very distant quasar in the background, and in the foreground we've got some tiddly little galaxy that happens to be in the way. So the light from the quasar is passing through and something is happening. (laughs) So we think what's going on is lensing, not gravitational lensing. So focusing of the light by gravity makes it temporarily brighter. So that's where you see these arc-like patterns on the sky of light which has gone through this lens of dark matter around a galaxy. That's right. Gravitational lensing is quite well known through giant clusters of galaxies making those arcs, as you say. And also a handful of quasars have double or quadruple images where the galaxy potential is bending the light. This is something else. We think it's not that. That wouldn't produce a big enough effect. This is lensing by a single star which happens to be in the foreground galaxy. It's very similar to what stellar astronomers and exoplanet hunters have been studying for years inside our own galaxy. So this is a well-known phenomenon. It's the first time we've seen it happening in the extragalactic universe. The alignment for that must have to be terribly correct for this star in this galaxy to be exactly in the line of sight to this quasar. It seems very coincidental that you found so many objects in this precise configuration. Well, indeed, it's extremely unlikely, but then you have to remember that we were looking at millions of galaxies. Over the whole sky, in fact, there's something like 100 million galaxies of the right kind of brightness that could potentially be in front of a background AGN. And then when the galaxy's in front, you still, most of the time, there isn't a star which is exactly aligned. But if you back of the envelope calculations, you find that there's about a one in a million chance at any one time that this is happening. But a one in a million compared to a hundred million galaxies, that's a hundred of them right now going bang over the sky. So I think that's what we're looking at. It's an extremely rare event, but it's going on all the time just because there are so many chances for it to happen. So an interesting example of statistics in action. And what can you learn by looking at these objects in this configuration? The main thing we can learn is possibly the structure of the quasar. The lensing effect by the star, the bending of the light, you can imagine a little circle around the star, and if the light passes within that circle, you get this bending effect. 
And if you compare that size to the expected size of the quasar in the background, the angular size, as it were, on the sky, to a first approximation, the quasar is a point source. It's smaller than the lens. But actually, depending on precisely how big a black hole it is and how big the star is, in many cases, they may in fact be comparable. And then you can measure the structure of the quasar. For instance, so in the accretion disk, the blue light should be near the middle and should be very compact, and the red light from the accretion disk should be rather bigger. So the blue light looks like a point source, and you get a kind of peaky light curve as it passes across. The red light um, gets sort of slightly washed out as it moves across the lens. So we should see color changes over the lifetime of the event, and that can tell us whether accretion disk models are correct and potentially even kind of you know, map out the shape of the quasar. So as this star is moving across in front of this quasar, it's sweeping out along a line in front of that quasar and giving you an indication of the brightness of the quasar along that line. Exactly so, yes. So you can think of it as the lens is being, it's like a magnifying glass. So you're scanning the magnifying glass across the quasar, but the quasar is not a single thing. It's got some sort of structure. So as you pass the magnifying glass across uh, the centre of the accretion disk or across the outer part of the accretion disk or the region where the emission line clouds are, they may well all give a slightly different result. And I guess this is one of the first times we've really been able to test our theories of what the environment is like very close into these quasars. Indeed, usually when people do this, they have to do it in a very indirect way. So this may be one of the most direct tests. The only way we can actually resolve the structure of a quasar by using this magnifying glass effect. That's the hope. So right now, having discovered these objects... We're trying to get lots more data, first of all, to decide whether the microlensing idea is correct, and that still needs proving. My hunch is it probably is the right answer, but we're not sure yet. And if it is correct, then we need a lot of data to try and track these changes and see if we can deduce the structure of a quasar. Professor Andy Lawrence from the University of Edinburgh. That's all for this month's Naked Astronomy but as always, you can find out more on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash astronomy, including many more interviews from NAM in the daily podcast that I put out in the first week of July. Next month, we'll be taking more of your astronomy questions, so if you've got anything you'd like us to tackle, you can send a tweet at Naked Scientists or send an email to astronomy at thenakedscientist.com. Naked Astronomy was produced this month by me, Dominic Ford, in St Andrews, ably assisted in Cambridge by Kate Lamble. It comes to you from Cambridge University with support from the Royal Astronomical Society and the Science and Technology Facilities Council.